Good afternoon and welcome to the Health Hour here on Cliff Central. Now, this voice may sound a bit unfamiliar to you, and the reason for that is that Dr. Jonathan Witt is away. He's enjoying his honeymoon, uh, so congratulations to Dr. Jono. Uh, but now let's just get the confusion out of the way. Uh, my name is Jonathan Sinclair. I am not a doctor, but if you want to, you can call me doctor or guru or samurai. Um, it won't make it true, but whatever. Um, it's a real privilege for me to, to be standing in for Dr. Jono today. Uh, we have a very informative show lined up, which we'll get into now. Um, just something which I hope you've noticed is the smell in the air lately. Everything smells fresh when I go outside, whether at work or at home, wherever I am. Whenever I walk out the door, I get smacked by this fresh smell. I can only describe it as spring. Uh, like I know it's probably a bit into spring, almost summer, but... I've just been feeling motivated lately, and I don't know if this is the reason for it, that just to be healthier and just to start with small things every day, what I've been trying to do lately is cut down on the sugar intake in my coffee. And I know this is a big thing for some people, but just starting with half a spoon less of sugar in your coffee every day, and then you work out maybe you have four cups of coffee a day, it really makes a huge difference. Um. Now that winter is over as well, I've been feeling I have a lot more energy. I've, uh, now that the sun is setting later, I find in the evenings I have more energy to go to gym. And I don't know if it is that change of season, but I just hope that whatever space that you find yourself in today, uh, perhaps you could just try improve on one thing about your health. Um, perhaps you could drink one more glass of water today. Um, perhaps you could have only four cups of coffee as opposed to five, or perhaps only one beer instead of two this evening. But whatever it is in your life, whatever that one little change is that you can make to live a happier and healthier life, I hope that you feel the motivation to make just that one little change each day. But now, before I go ahead of myself, let's not forget today's show. Um, we're dealing with a very serious health issue. Um, it is a part of our overall well-being that I think we often overlook. Um, and the reason I think we overlook it is because we can't always see the physical signs of these health issues. What I mean by this is, if you were to eat something which is not good for you, let's say you go out for dinner and you eat a meal that has been sitting in the freezer and it is rotten, you will see the physical effects because you'll feel nauseous. You'll see the physical effects because you will throw up. Um, let's say you were to catch the flu. Uh, you would see physical effects by sneezing, coughing. Um, you may feel lethargic. Now, when someone in your family, let's say, for instance, your child or your loved one, uh, develops a rash, those physical signs are available. And maybe that's the reason why we act on these issues. So if your child were to develop a rash, you would run off to the chemist and get something. If they were to be throwing up, you would perhaps go to the chemist and get some Valoid or get something to rehydrate them. You would deal with that issue immediately. But then the question is, when someone is dealing with a mental sickness or a mental illness and we cannot see the physical effects, I think that is the reason why we don't deal with the issue. That is the reason why we think either myself as the person dealing with the mental issue or the person who is actually suffering with it is just having to get over something. Maybe we pass it off as a phase or we say they're just feeling sorry for themselves or they're just in a not a good space. And we don't necessarily necessarily rather seek treatment for these issues. 
Now, another thing which I've noticed, especially in social circles, is that no one would ever laugh or gossip about someone who was suffering with cancer or someone who had a tumor. Now, however, it's when it comes to dealing with mental issues, I find that in social circles, we are a lot more lenient in terms of joking about it or poking fun at it, fun at it. Uh, so often, let's say your friend gets angry and just moments ago they were in a fine mood. Now all of a sudden they're angry. We might say, oh, they have bipolar. Or let's say somebody is sad today and you go to them and you say, why are you so depressed? Or, you know, what in your life do you have to be sad about? Now, if that person were to have another kind of illness, we wouldn't be so quick to point it out, would we? So there is this whole stigma attached to mental illness, and I think often the stigma is that we don't take it seriously. Perhaps because we don't have that mental issue, we think that the person who is suffering with it is just almost, can I say, self-indulging, or is, I don't want to say this too often, but feeling sorry for themselves. And the reason is that we don't understand it, perhaps, because we don't see those physical signs that I was talking about. And this is the reason why we're having this important discussion. We're going to be discussing mental illnesses, uh, the effects that they cause, um, how it affects the family structure. We're also going to discuss things that you should be saying to people who are suffering with such a mental disorder, whatever it may be. Things that you can say, things that you shouldn't say. Also, how to act around those people. Should we act differently? Should we treat them differently? Perhaps in a work environment, should they have less strain put on them? Or when when trouble hits, uh, you know, should they be protected from from the stress of whatever problem is, as opposed to the other employees who can maybe handle it? So, if you have any questions, we want to know. This is not going to be a place of judgment. If you are suffering from a mental illness, if you know someone, if you just think that there might be something wrong, perhaps you want to know the difference between simply feeling sad for a few days and actually having a problem with depression. These are all questions that we want to answer today in the health hour. So we're going to go to a break now, but I just want you to know that you can contact us. You simply go on WeChat, tap message to show, or call us on 861 555 As I drove across on the highway, my Jeep began to rock. I didn't know what to do, so I stopped and got out and looked down. I noticed I got a flat so I walked out the park the car like sideways, so I can find out what I can fix. I looked around, there were no cars on the highway. I felt a strange feeling like a mist, so I walked down toward the end of the road.
city up here are where kids are playing and people are laughing and smiling and loving fear. She said, it's, it's the place where no people have pain with love and happiness. She turned around, looked down in my eyes and start crying and come again. You've got a friend. Welcome back. This is the Health Hour on Cliff Central. Uh, this is Jonathan Sinclair. I am standing in for Dr. Jonathan Witt. He is currently enjoying his honeymoon. Um, with me now in studio, I have uh, Cindy Stradom and Bronwyn Wood from Cindy Stradom Psychologists, and we are talking mental illnesses. So, uh, Cindy and Bronwyn, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So now you two are both clinical psychologists. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Yes. And now you guys, I understand you work together in your own practice. And uh, yeah. So how is that going? How do you find dealing with mental issues on a daily basis? Does it affect you as people in your personal lives? Um, absolutely. Really? It does. You have to manage it really well, though, just mm-hmm. like anything. Do you, uh, Bronwyn, do you and Cindy ever have to unload on one another? Um, obviously you hear and take in a lot of stuff mm-hmm. on your daily, day-to-day jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever have to unload that? Yeah, we often debrief with one another, mostly informally, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but it's also a good idea to have your own therapist. We usually call them a supervisor mm-hmm. and you can see them sort of once a month. Okay. And then you get guidance on how to manage the stress mm-hmm. because it's a constant thing that needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. But obviously the confidentiality does come into play that you can't be too specific, but what if, uh, you know, one of your patients are dealing with such an issue that mm-hmm. you don't know what to do? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, are you then allowed to go to someone and say, help me to help this person? Yeah, absolutely. What you can do is you can either um, ask your patient whether mm-hmm. you can share certain aspects with the colleague so mm-hmm. that you can brainstorm. Or if you have a supervisor, they essentially your therapist. So everything you discuss with them is private mm-hmm. and confidential. Mm-hmm. And Cindy, how do you find that you deal with that? Do you, do you ever find that you take a load home with you like – Maybe in the in the morning you're in such a good mood, and then after dealing with patients all day who have big mental issue problems, uh, some bigger than others, do you find that it affects your life? I think our training helps quite a bit with that. Um, I know that my supervisor, when I was an intern, really taught me to go home and be my own person. So literally when you're at office, you're working, but when you're going home, you're going to be whoever you are. Mm-hmm. So you come back to the office and deal with whatever it is, but you mm-hmm. don't take it into your personal life. Mm. So I think that really helped me. But there are times where things do affect you, and then just having your own coping strategies is very good, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's going for a good run or taking it out in a boxing bag mm-hmm. or whatever the case is, mm-hmm. but finding something that that lets you unload. Mm-hmm. And then as Brahman said, you know, whether it's discussing with a supervisor or a colleague or whatever the case is, but you know, I think one of the things we always are aware of is how things affect us so that we don't transfer that to our patients. Mm-hmm. Yes, I see. Now, yeah, I think an outlet is so important, you know. Like people, although they may be unloading words on you, those words have energy and it, it must affect you in your life. But now let's get onto the topic of today. We're dealing with mental illness and mental disorders. And I think the word or the term mental illness can encompass a wide range of things. So just before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, um, what is classified as a mental illness or what falls into that category? Well, there's a bunch of different things. I mean, when we look at mental disorders, they are classified according to from mood disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders, um, learning disorders, mm-hmm. so anything. But I think the big thing is any disorder, it's not just a normal problem. We look at the severity of how it affects a person's life. So it must cause distress firstly, so psychological distress that you you feel you're not coping. Secondly, it must impair negatively on the person's life. Mm -hmm. So it must affect their functioning in a way that that it really becomes a disorder. Otherwise, it's unfortunately just normal problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then... Obviously, it's got to be a duration. It can't just be one day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It would be for a duration, depending on what it is, okay. that it would affect someone. All right. Now, in your practice, without going into specifics, what would you say is the most common mental illness that we deal with in our society? I think that depends on therapist to therapist. I don't think mm-hmm. it's something that either of us could answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all depends on your specialities as well. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, I work a lot with couples, so I work with a lot of relationship problems. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we work with a lot of people who have different work stresses, those kind of things. And then one of the things that I do enjoy working in and specialize in is anxiety disorders. So mm-hmm. I would obviously see whether it's social anxieties, whether it's performance anxieties, panic attacks, um, Specific phobias. Mm-hmm. So I work a lot with anxieties where Brahman would work with something with different things. <laughs> but now when the patient comes, they don't necessarily know what their problem is. So how do they know, should I go to Bronwyn? Should I go to Cindy? Should I go to this person? Because they come to you and say, I'm feeling a certain way. Help me. Mm-hmm. So then what do you assess them? You Do you give them maybe a written test or do you just speak to them and come up with 
a diagnosis eventually, or how does that work? Well, the initial session, you know, is essentially a diagnostic session. Mm -hmm. So you ask all the relevant questions, you do a few little tests if you have to, and then you refer on. Most of us can deal with a wide variety of things. So even if you do specialize, it doesn't mean you can't deal with certain things. Mm -hmm. But if you feel like it's out of your scope, then definitely you just refer. You explain to the patient what the problem is and how to move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, with treatment, let's take a common example, depression. Let's just use that as our generic example. Let's say I come to you for treatment for depression. Is there a start date and an end date? When do you say, okay, we, we're done with our treatments? Mm. Or is it just an ongoing process until the person themselves feel that they're over it? Or can it ever be cured? Is it just something you manage? How does mental illness work in that regard? Well, it's a little bit different. You know, you get, I think mental health is essentially about balance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like your body, it needs to be balanced in all the different areas of functioning. Mental health, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So someone can start developing a reactive depression to a situation, even though they're, they're not clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. Something like that tends to resolve itself. Whereas clinical depression, because it's a, it's more a medical condition than anything else, mm -hmm. that needs to be managed with things like medication, mm -hmm. developing better coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So that's an on -term, like a long-term thing. Mm -hmm. But the idea is to teach the patient to be able to manage themselves rather than relying. On so now, obviously, that type of uh, disorder would be caused by situational factors. Mm -hmm. So the person is unhappy with some situation in their life, whether they know it or they don't. Mm -hmm. Are you ever born with a mental disorder? Mm -hmm. Are they the generic ones, such as bipolar, such mm -hmm. as depression, such as... I'm, I'm hesitant to words the, use the word generic, mm -hmm. but you get my drift. Those yeah. are the most common ones we hear about. Mm -hmm. So... Are those some things that are genetic within us? So, so Jonathan, if I had to explain it this way, you know, the same way that all of us have a predisposition already when we're born with whether it's health issues or whether it is a mental disorder kind of thing, yes, we all have the possibility to develop things given our genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. So think about it like a glass having a bit of water in already. That will be there. And if that glass gets filled up, Whatever is already there will mm. become what it is. So, yes, we surely are all born with things that we are then inherited through whoever the family members might have been or whatever the case is. But then there would be stressors, triggers in our mm -hmm. lives that would actually have to let it become what it is rather than us just, you know, being born. And from the moment we're born, we mm. already have whatever the thing is. What I'm getting is at is genetics does play a factor. In, in Is it in all mental illness or is it only certain mental illnesses? Uh, for instance, let's say someone was a psychopath. Now, I don't know even know if that is a mental illness, but would their children p have a possibility of being psychopaths through genetics, mm. even if they had no relationship with their parents? Yes. Really? Yeah. That's what, how big of a part genetics mm. plays in this thing. Mm. Incredible. Well, they've done several studies on things on disorders like bipolar and schizophrenia, and there's a huge genetic component. It doesn't, but with like with anything with genetics, it's, it depends on how it's expressed in the environment. So you might have this huge genetic load for schizophrenia, but if you are in an environment that supports other genetic mm -hmm. predispositions, then mm -hmm. there's a chance you won't develop it. But if it does develop, mm -hmm. then the chances of you managing it um, without actually considering the fact that all your other genetic developments will then have been affected by it 
That's just not really a possibility. All right. Now, I don't even think you can answer this question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Can it be cured? For instance, if I have cancer and I go for my treatment and they say it's gone. Can they say that with mental illnesses? I've been on treatment. I've been on medication. Can the doctor or the psychologist, the psychiatrist say to me, you are cured? Well, I guess if we look back at the the definition of a mental disorder, if it's no longer causing distress and it's not, mm. it's no longer uh, affecting, affecting your, your functioning in mm. that way, technically, yes, I guess you could call it cured. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, with if we can use cancer, you might be in remission, mm-hmm. although you need to. It be It always careful. has that possibility of tri- things that trigger it yes. to bring it back. All right, now I know that psych. Psychiatrists are the ones who deal in medication and you as psychologists, you deal more in the therapy. So is it possible to, um, how, how does it work? Do you not believe in the medication side of treating mental illness or do you just believe therapy is better? Well, we're not trained to, to um, prescribe medication. So mm-hmm. I think the same way that you get doctors and pharmacists and I don't know, speech therapists, et cetera, everybody's got a field of speciality. Mm-hmm. So we work very, very strongly in conjunction with, you know, psychiatrists or even mm-hmm. medical doctors that prescribe things. Mm-hmm. But we also do believe that it's not just a one foot kind of cure you need. You need the other side of it as well. Mm-hmm. So therapy along with medication often has very positive results. Not everybody needs medication. Mm-hmm. And then obviously therapy would be the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess you could say it in the other way, although I do believe that if you are on some form of um, antidepressants and anxiety, you most probably would need therapy. But I guess there are a lot of people that cope just on the medication as well. Okay. Now, if someone is taking a, a um, other mood stabilizer or, like you say, an antidepressant and they are not going for treatment, uh, they are not going for therapy, is that then just they take their tablet every day and live their lives? Is it for a certain period? How does that work? Do you? <coughs> it depends on what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, look, the type of person who is predisposed towards, let's say, emotional instability, their coping mechanisms are going to be affected. Mm-hmm. So going to see a therapist is just a good idea because it's going to help you psychologically manage mm-hmm. that difficulty. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, uh, taking it long term, it really depends on because there, there's a whole range of clinical diagnoses that mm-hmm. we work with. So let's take trauma, for example. Yeah. You can get acute trauma, which mm-hmm. is like the initial reaction to a traumatic event and that you can use short term therapy to manage the immediate symptoms. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, like medical therapy. And then you can do psychotherapy to help the person cope. But let's say it develops into post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. long term. Then it might actually become so ingrained that they're going to have to take medication mm-hmm. for a longer period. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. All right. Now, would you say a certain portion of our population are more predisposed to mental disorders? Like, for instance, is it mainly women who seek treatment or is it mainly men in their 20s to 30s? Or is it just a broad range of society that has these disorders? I, I know it's a big group to put them all into, but I would say the pe- people who seek treatment, um, is there a, a common denominator? No. <laughs> I think it's a general population thing. I'm not sure if Brahman agrees with me. Yeah, I think there's a big difference, though, between having a high prevalence in a particular area and then people who seek treatment because mm-hmm. people who seek treatment are educated about mm. the possibility of psychotherapy yes, and mental yes. illness and all of that. 
but um, if you're looking at a more disadvantaged community, community yeah. where there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of crime, mm. there's very little support, um, you'll find a high incidence of mental... I would imagine in those communities mm. where survival is the main thing, I suppose if you go to your parent who is just battling to put food on the table and say, I'm feeling sad, I'm, I'm feeling depressed, etc., th- there's no money for mm. that type of thing. I suppose in some cultures and in some communities... There's just bigger issues uh, on the agenda, like survival and food and, I suppose, your physical well-being as opposed to mental well-being that we cannot see and, you know, engage with. Now, I'm sure you ladies um, follow the gossip columns, and I'm sure you heard of the story of Tom Cruise and uh, Brooke Shields, where Brooke Shields uh, went public with the fact that she was taking antidepressants. And Tom Cruise, I don't know whose show he was on, he went on a rant about how she could have treated it with vitamins and exercise and correct diet. And anyway, it was a big story, and eventually he had to apologize, and everyone was on his back. She was actually being treated for a post... Natal depression. Postnatal, exactly. Now, how important is diet and exercise in our mental well-being? It, it does, does diet and exercise trigger things? Does it affect it in such a way that it can cause you as someone who was never depressed before to now being clinically depressed? Well, if you think of it in this way, if you see your physical body and your emotional body being interlinked, obviously not taking care of yourself on the one aspect will have an effect on the other aspect. Mm -hmm. And therefore, yes, diet, exercise, work-life balance, all those things are essential to making sure that we cope and protect ourselves against developing mental disorders Mm -hmm. so very often in our in our therapy sessions you know we don't just go okay you're depressed that's it we look at all the other aspects that are contributing to it Mm -hmm. so we would recommend you know make sure you're looking after yourself get Mm -hmm. exercise and have a healthy diet um, get enough sleep is it all chemical at the end of the day so any disorder is it chemical in your brain so let's say I have a let's say I'm bipolar. That's chemical or depressed. It's chemical, or is it a thought process? Um, well, certain things are definitely chemical, but there would be parts of it that would be thought processes as well. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the example of having cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, cancer is definitely your body's disorder, if you can put it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But how you are understanding it, how you're making sense of it. What your thought is about it, mm-hmm. that would obviously be more your thoughts. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that Bronwyn may want to add in something. Um, if you just think about that, all of our experience and everything that we do rests on our physical body. Okay. okay. So when you have a good experience or you have a surprise or you're working out a mathematical problem, there are chemicals that are required in your brain to send all those signals. Mm-hmm. So if that's disrupted in any way, it's going to alter your experience. Mm-hmm. So, but your processes can also influence that. So, if you get stuck in a depressive cycle of thinking, mm-hmm. then you can actually start affecting your brain chemistry. Obviously, not in a very big way, yeah. but there is that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. So, it's very reciprocal. Yeah. So, the one yeah. depends on the other. Okay. Yeah. But now, just in the same token as you say that taking care of your body is taking care of your mind, if you turn that around, how do you take care of your mind to take care of your body? In other words, taking care of my body, I can eat right, I can exercise. How do I take care of my mental health? Well, well it is looking at what your thought patterns are. Mm-hmm. So understanding how you make sense of situations. So if you are going to work every day and you're going, I hate my job, I hate my job, you're going to walk out there at the end of the day and be mm-hmm. miserable and unhappy and possibly 
be the praise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking after your mind would be understanding what your thought patterns are that might be contributing to how you experience certain situations in your life. Now, obviously, you would also have to look at those situations where you can't do anything about it. So it's probably more likely that you're going to have to get out of that situation than just a thought pattern. So just thinking positively about something isn't necessarily mm. going to make it a better experience. Which And often we hear that, thinking positive, and it's much easier said than done when you don't feel well. Mm. You know, when you're feeling good, it's so easy to have positive thoughts. But when you're not feeling good, it's so hard to tell your brain to think positively mm. and to see the bright side. But I suppose it really does help if you put the time and effort into it. And how important would you say silencing your mind is? I, I think in this day and age, we're just bombarded with information, with images, with texts, with everything every day is information. And I think that overload can – does that affect our mental health? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think one of the – maybe to answer or add to the previous mm-hmm. question, mm-hmm. it's good to have – Mental, like good mental hygiene. Mm-hmm. So, and first of all, you need to understand how the mind works to a certain degree. So, you've got to inform yourself and find out because there also aren't sort of set ideas or principles on how all of this works. We're still figuring a lot of this mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Um, and quieting your mind and sort of being mindful and learning how to manage your attention, your focus, your concentration um, is so essential because um, you become. Reactive to your own processes rather than directing your mental processes. Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of quieting your mind is about. And if you're constantly bombarded with all of the stuff, we don't get a chance to do that. And we actually lose the skill mm-hmm. to focus on things when we need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so sometimes multitasking, I think, is not the best thing because, like you say, you're not giving your full attention to that thing. So just quieting your mind, knowing what to focus on, mm-hmm. what is important. And I suppose if you, you have to have your priorities straight. So to know that doesn't need my attention right Mm. now Mm. this needs my attention Mm. now do you think that people who work too much and who fill up their lives with things to do is that some type of mental disorder is that constantly needing to be busy or Mm. not being able to sit with yourself for 10 minutes Mm. is that a problem in our society i do think it's a problem i don't think it's a dsm diagnosis okay so I do think in the society we live in, you know, we, we're demanding perfectionism from ourselves. We, we're demanding to be busy the whole time. We're bombarded with, as you said, whether it's some form of media, text messages or something that needs to be done. It mm-hmm. does become, does become a problem in our lives. You know, I think anxiety disorders often go about the fact that we're so busy taking in information and we're so busy rating ourselves according to how well we should perform mm-hmm. when it comes to all these things. But as Brown was saying, you know, if we don't, actually pay attention to certain things there's no way that we can give 100 percent to that Mm -hmm. and we're almost setting ourselves up to failure because then i can't perform as well as i am because i've either not got enough time to do it or i am trying to do 20 things at once or whatever the case is then i land up only doing 60 percent as well as Mm -hmm. what i want to and then that creates more thinking patterns which are either negative appraisal or some ways meaning that it reflects badly on me as a person mm-hmm. and my personal worth yes. to a degree because of mm-hmm. that. But I think nowadays we do put so much personal worth into our careers because it's what defines us. When someone says, what are you? You say, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm this. It's the first thing I think before you even give your name, you'll say what you do. And I think that is why people get so affected and want to be the best in everything that they do. But now... I know normal doctors, I think, get annoyed when patients come into their rooms and say, this is what's wrong with me. 
uh, I have a sore throat, therefore I have tonsillitis, treat me for that. Do you find patients coming into your room saying, this is what's wrong with me, I have this problem? Or do they just come to you and say, what is wrong with me? How does it work? Well, both. Um, often you have people coming in that are very stuck in a particular way of relating. Mm-hmm. And and then we become sort of a central focus point for that. And then a lot of the typical things that they do, they then repeat with us. Mm-hmm. And sort of part of that is coming in and saying, no, I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. And this is the route you have to take. We mm-hmm. can't explore anything else because they want to be in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You just work with that. And over time, mm-hmm. then when you actually give them skills that give them real control, they're not going to look to other places for that immediate sense of control that's not really there. Okay. Well, I actually want to pick up again on that when we come back from the break. I just want to talk about how to know when there's a problem. So, for instance, if I've been feeling sad for the last two weeks, is it just that I'm feeling sad or is it a problem that I need to get sorted out? So we'll talk about that when we come back. CliffCentral.com Just one more day Just want me over. Seven feet. 
Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. Right, this is the Health Hour. Jonathan Sinclair standing in for Dr. Jonathan Witt. Today we are talking mental disorders with Cindy Stradom and Bronwyn Wood, and they're both clinical psychologists from Cindy Stradom Psychologists. Is that, am I saying that right? Yes. <laughs> okay, great, Cindy. Thank you. Now, just before we took a break, we were talking about when to know it's time to get help. So you've been suffering and you don't know why you're feeling a certain way. And perhaps the situations in your life are not traumatic. Perhaps things in your life are running smoothly, but you're not feeling normal. When do you go for help? What's that cutoff point? I know Cindy mentioned earlier when it starts affecting your life, but what are the signs to look for in yourself and possibly in your loved ones? Well, I think one of the things is is that we've got to listen to that little voice inside of us. We know when we're not coping. We know when we're not doing okay. The same way that we got this this feeling before we get completely ill, we know, oh, you know what, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on my way to getting flu or whatever the case is. We've got to listen to that voice inside of us saying we're not doing okay. But it doesn't matter what it is, you know, we need to do something about it because if that had to continue, we don't know what it's going to result in. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things. So whether you do, for example, go for therapy purely for personal development mm-hmm. or whether you are going to have a look at I am depressed or I have got anxiety and panic attacks or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing to understand that therapy is not just there for people who have problems. Mm-hmm. It is there for development of yourself. Addressing so not everyone who comes to you has a problem per se. Oh. Perhaps they're just looking for self-improvement or maybe some advice. Mm-hmm. And I find often you might may have a problem and you want to talk to the people closest to you, but because they're so close to you, you can't really get an unbiased opinion. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I think that as well, when you come to a psychologist, they have no history with you. They have no prior misconceptions about you or what you they think you need in your life or you know so maybe that's where it comes in but now let's move on i want to get more specific and i want to talk about bipolar now i know there's bipolar one and there's bipolar two is that correct yes what is the difference there um the main difference is okay with bipolar it's um consists of manic and depressive episodes mm-hmm. okay mania is when you're really happy uh-huh. lots of energy you know your thinking isn't that clear because you're just over the moon uh-huh. and then obviously the depression is the depression mm-hmm. so with bipolar 1 you get full manias and full depressions whereas bipolar 2 you don't reach full manias and they mm-hmm. call it hypomania so it's just sort of under mm-hmm. that threshold okay. but you do go through full depressions with these bipolar patients whether it be type one or type two is there in between like you say either they manic or they uh, what is the manic or depressive is there a point when they're in between where they're just normal oh absolutely or do you either see them in this state or that state no 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 they um you know they definitely have periods where they are functioning fine and they're not in either a manic mm-hmm. or a hypomanic or a depressive state mm-hmm. you also get mixed states so it's a combination between mania and depression which mm-hmm. is so, so you're in a state of m- mania, and now I mean, I've seen people who I, th- I think are in manic stages, and they want to take on the world, they want to accomplish things, mm-hmm. like maybe in the middle of the night they want to paint their room, or is is that the type of thing when someone is manic? Whereas mm-hmm. if they're in their depressive state, they literally, I, I suppose, want to die or mm-hmm. can't get out of bed. Yes. Is that the extremity of it? Yes. 
And now how I suppose it takes years to diagnose someone. They don't just come in, give you the problems and say, this is it, and you give them a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I suppose these ailments go untreated for years Mm -hmm. until the family members, I suppose, bring this person in or Mm -hmm. until they've really hit rock bottom, maybe Mm -hmm. even turn to substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So how what what happens where do we catch it do we catch it in school is it the family that must catch it because i can imagine a person in their depressive state is not going to phone a psychologist and make a booking mm. they they don't have that mental capacity or the do you know what i mean and mm. i suppose in their manic state they're so happy they don't think they need help mm. so how do you help these people i think people that are in depressed states are actually more inclined to call us mm-hmm. It's when they are in the hypermania or the mania states that they most probably won't because everything's great. They're on top of the world. You know, they can work 26-hour days um, mm-hmm. or they, you know, go on spending sprees. And so it really is this this elaborate on top of the world behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's not just being in a good mood. And I think this is one of the things we have to understand about bipolar and what Brahman said is that a normal mood range Think about it like a gray area. So we've got a middle line and we go up and down but on this gray area. And this is we're supposed to have good days and we're supposed to have bad days. Our, de- our bipolar, so our mania states or our hypermania states, are so much more than just a normal good mm-hmm. mood. Mm-hmm. And our depressive states are so much more than just a bad day. Okay. And the people that usually they are depressed, they do struggle. But as I said, in the hypermania, they surely won't call us. Mm-hmm. However... I think the moment that other family members are picking it up or it's disruptive to their lives in some other way, you know, somebody who can't get out of bed and therefore, you know, they, they're not seeing family and friends anymore. They're not possibly missing work. They are whatever, but they, they somehow withdrawing from society. Usually mm-hmm. the family would much probably pick it up or the close loved ones would pick it up. And it is difficult. I mean, therapy is unfortunately one of those things where you can't drag somebody else into the room and make mm. them get therapy. Yes. yes. So it's got to be their choice. So if you do feel that somebody needs therapy, rather approach them with the possibility and mm. let them make the decision for themselves. Now, let's say someone has been diagnosed and let's say, for instance, they have bipolar one. They've been treated for it. And how do you treat that person, let's say, in the workspace? Do you treat them differently? Do you have to maybe um, not be as harsh on them or maybe speak to them differently in terms of, let's say you have a something that you don't agree with. Can you, you know, do you have to walk in eggshells or how do you deal with them? Or do you just treat them like you treat everyone else? Yeah, I would say you shouldn't treat them too differently. You should Mm -hmm. just be mindful and compassionate towards everybody that you know. Mm -hmm. And if you know, for example, that a friend of yours maybe is a little more sensitive about a certain topic, you'll approach it a little bit sensitively Mm -hmm. because you just have that insight and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be too different with people who have something like bipolar. How long do those episodes last? So let's say someone I know is in a manic episode. Is there a time limit? Can it be a day? Is it a week? What is that episode? Yeah, it can range between a couple of hours because you get something called cyclothymia. That's where there's very rapid cycling. Mm-hmm. So it can be just so really the mood is up and down. Up and yeah. down. But it can range from a day or a week, or even up to four weeks. Mm-hmm. Someone can stay in a, a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Depressive episode, they tend to stay longer in. Mm-hmm. But it also depends because with severe bipolar, you can become psychotic as well. 
And then if you develop a psychosis, then it lasts quite a long time. What exactly does that mean, becoming psychotic and psychosis? Mm. What, what is that? Well, psychosis is when you start losing touch with reality. Okay. So you start having sort of, they call them like positive and sort of negative symptoms of psychosis. Positive is like an additional, it's an add-on to your experience. So like seeing things or mm-hmm. hearing things that aren't there. Whereas the negative, it's like subtracting from experience. So your capacity for language and your ability to think clearly and all of that's very, very badly affected. So mm-hmm. these people tend to have like delusional beliefs sort of based on very like loosely connected ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's like typically a psychosis. Do you notice that most people try to self-medicate? Mm. Is it, is it, is it like such a high statistic that like 90% of them have tried to help themselves mm-hmm. with either over the counter medication? Mm-hmm. So, by the time they get you, are they dependent on that medication? Mm. Or do, do they then have to go to rehab? Or what do you do? Yeah, often that is the case. I mean, with very severe cases, it's different. You know, you're not going to have people coming to see us at a private uh, practice who have this level of severity. You know, you'll see patients like this in a hospital, mm-hmm. you know, where they're usually there against their will. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different situation. So you've got a whole team of people and, you know, you have people working on their physical well-being. So, you know, if they have to withdraw and get mm-hmm. off of whatever drugs they've been taking, you know, you've got a whole team of experts that do that. Mm-hmm. And then they go through sort of rehabilitation, all of that with occupational therapists and mm-hmm. obviously do work with us as well. Because we, we work mainly with coping mechanisms and your pattern of interaction. So you kind of have to be functioning relatively well before we can start doing what mm-hmm. we need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. So what you're saying is you don't really see the people that are at the pits because if they're coming to you in a private capacity, their lives are probably not that chaotic. Mm -hmm. Now, do you ever deal with people that have been hospitalized? Do you ever have to go do these outpatient visits as clinical psychologists where you actually have to counsel the people, let's say, in the hospital ward? Or is that what happens? Maybe after, let's say, a suicide attempt or or, or a near drug overdose, etc. Do you deal with those things? Um, there are times where obviously we either would go and see somebody in a hospital or a clinic or whatever the case is. However, most of our hospitals and most of our clinics already have a psychology support system mm-hmm. within, within that system. And unless it's a patient of yours already, a pre-existing patient, and you arrange with a hospital, uh, we usually don't interfere. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. So mm-hmm. unless it's a special request, Mm-hmm. So there are times, definitely, and, you know, all of us start off with working for as internships and community service times where we are put within hospital settings, um, clinical settings, those kind of things. And so we all have had training and exposure to those kinds of situations, whether it's your parasuicides or, you know, your psychotic patients in a ward or whatever the case is. So it's not as if we've been excluded from that experience completely. Mm-hmm. It's just within private practice, as Ron was saying, we usually see more functional patients. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there are times. Do you um would you say that eating disorders are mental disorders? Or are they a symptom of a mental disorder? No, the eating disorders are are even in the DSM classified as a diagnosis on its own. Okay, so it's not because I'm depressed I have an eating disorder. It's it's a it's a Disorder on its own. Yes. Now, what causes those? Uh, is that environmental factors? Because I, I can't. In my mind, I can imagine a person being born with a predisposition to depression or bipolar, but I can't imagine a person being born with a predisposition to, let's say, anorexia or to bulimia. So, are those all 
uh, products of the life you've lived and what people have said to you and your experiences? How do those come about? It's definitely a lot more influenced by society or family members. Um, what we often do see is within eating disorders is that they, they're raised in homes where either weight is very important or it's a coping mechanism mm-hmm. in its own way. Mm-hmm. You know, I might not be able to control my environment, but I'm able to control what I eat and how I look like. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it does become more Do the more eating focused. disorders all come down to the way I look? Or, it, it, in other words, are the eating disorders there just so that the person can try and prove their, their look? Or is it a, another reason why a person would have an eating disorder in their mind? Do you understand what I'm saying? I think... Well, in their minds, it's always difficult. You've got to go individual person for individual person to actually find out what their pattern is, how they understand their disorder. So there's unfortunately not a generic answer for it. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, there are so many studies that have been done on eating disorders. Um, As part of my master's thesis, I actually did a study looking at, um, you know, factors like self-compassion, you know, critical parents, all those things. Mm And that definitely does play a part as well, mm-hmm. although there's not an exact recipe to say this will equal an eating disorder because people have got resilience as well. And even if you're placed in that exact situation that might cause an eating disorder in one person, it most probably won't in the next person. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit of a difficult question to answer exactly. Does it come down to a control thing? I've often heard, not from so much as professionals, but that, let's say, anorexic. If a girl is anorexic, you'll find that although she doesn't eat food, she's always around food. She's always preparing the food. She's always in the kitchen. And is is it a control thing? It's like you were saying earlier, I, I may not be able to control this, but I can control what I put in my body. So, But how does that make them feel better about the issue? Well, yes, it is a control thing, definitely. I mean, whether I think the eating disorders, if we look at something like anorexia, I mean, there's the eating um, focused type in the sense of I'm not eating, or even if we're looking at bulimia, for example, what I put in my mouth. But there's an exercise type as well. Mm, so yes. if I'm over-exercising, it is a form mm. of bulimia as well. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, yes, it is always a control thing. So I'm trying to control myself, I'm trying to control food, I'm trying to control my world. But there might be something else in my world that's out of control. And I'm not trying to control that thing, I'm trying to control the wrong thing to try and control that situation. Mm -hmm. So maybe it could be a sense of I don't feel that I'm approved by people around me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not liked. Maybe if I'm 10 kilograms skinnier, I will feel more liked and that's my way of trying to control that. But why does it seem that these types of eating disorders affect women as opposed to men. I, I know there are men, but the majority is women. I think I think it's a society thing. I think it does affect a lot of men. I just don't think that men have come forward as much of having it. I think we stereotypically see it to be a woman thing. I think women might be you know, easier to talk about their weight and what diet they're on and those kind of things and what mm, men do. Okay, I'm with you. So it, it's more, It's I don't think that it's that much stronger within the female population than what it is. It might just present differently within no. males than what it does in females. And I, I suppose with men, if they were to have some type of, and I'm going to use the word anorexia loosely, if they were to, their anorexia would be to look fit and look as opposed to looking skinny. Yes. So maybe they would look healthy, but 
in actual fact they're not. Is, is, do you get what yes. I'm saying by so that? So it's more about bulking up yeah. and, and having and maybe, the right muscles. And, and maybe they are obsessive about it and it is a problem, but because they look so healthy on the outside, no one questions it. And I, I guess also men are a lot more reluctant to talk about those type of things when they're amongst a group of guys and having beers, like talking about the diet they're on and et cetera, et cetera. I would say it's more a bragging thing. How many, how, how many push-ups you did or how, how many yes. times this week you gymmed, et cetera. But I suppose all these disorders at the end come down to obsessive behavior. Is, would you say that? So even depression and bipolar, you're always obsessing about something in your mind. It, would you agree with that, that it's an obsession or it's some type of thing that you won't let go of? I think your anxiety type disorders, your eating disorders, those things, yes, it is more of something that you're obsessed about, using that term loosely mm, as yes, well. Yes. Whereas your depressions is more of functioning because being depressed, you know, you want to be able to get out of bed. You want to be able to mm. interact with people. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And so it's more of a functioning kind of thing than what it's an obsession, I would say, in my experience. Now, just before we end, we live in a country where there's um, many races, many cultures. But now I, I would say that let's say someone was hospitalized for depression, that that would be seen as a quote-unquote white disease. And I've met a black girl before who said to me when she was hospitalized that the nurses – didn't try help her. They just said to her, this is a white person's disease. I think she was actually treated for bulimia. And they just said she must get over it because it's a white person's disease. Now, how do you deal with that? Because I suppose a lot of people don't come forward with these things because in their culture, it's not even a real disease. Maybe they don't have a name for it. Mm. Or so How do you do what? Well, I think the best thing to point out is that it really is very much a medical thing. And you've got to sort of arrive with facts. And I think because depression in society in general is very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So people often think it's just I'm feeling, I'm feeling low and I just, mm-hmm. I'm too weak to sort of do what I need to do and so on and so forth. But, um, it's, it's very much like any other medical condition. You've got a serious lack in your body and it's affecting what we call your circadian rhythms. So like your sleep patterns, your mm-hmm. appetite, everything that your body depends on to function normally mm-hmm. is being negatively affected so and then your mood is sort of the biggest component mm-hmm. or at least it's the biggest part you experience because it's your mood so um when people sort of and you know we've, i'm sure you've had this as well cindy especially in the government hospitals where um you know many different disorders like uh there was an epileptic patient mm-hmm. once and she was having all sorts of hallucinations and half of the town sort of came into the office to explain that um, she was having visions uh, and that she's yes. not ill. Yeah. So we had to kind of arrange a meeting and then really explain on a very medical level, but we also got in um, one of the traditional mm-hmm. The traditional healers. And then yeah. we were working together to explain. Just to k- keep that trust there that yes, exactly. you know, you're not trying to lie to them. I think it is a very difficult thing for some mm-hmm. people. Like I suppose in our community here, we live in the north and we speak of these things. So... But I think people out there in the rural community, they, they've never heard of these things. Mm. Another question I just want to ask just before we go is, is society having more mental issues now? Or were these issues always around and only now are we treating them and finding out what they are, etc.? I definitely think that as our generations have progressed, we've become more and more comfortable with the idea that things like depression exist, those kind of things. So it's not that the prevalence is more, it's mm-hmm. just that the awareness. the awareness is more. And if I have mm-hmm. to give an example, you know, 
I had such a chuckle a while ago because my mom had mentioned that my grandfather still doesn't understand what I do. He doesn't get why people <laughs> come to me and talk about problems. Why would they throw money at you to <laughs> sit and have a conversation? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's just a few generations ago. Yeah. So just as an example, we definitely have progressed to the idea where this is more something that we're aware of. No. All right. Well, Cindy and Bronwyn, thank you so much. This has been so informative. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy days. I know you could be making money at this time, but you chose to be here with us. So I thank you very much. And it was a great show. And I think we learned a lot. And I hope that we can just remember that these are real medical issues and people aren't feeling sorry for themselves. They aren't being self-indulgent. And if someone wants to go for therapy, they're not just going there to get attention, that these are real issues. And I hope that we can all just be more aware of that. But I do thank you for joining us. And I'm very sure that Dr. Jonathan Witt will be back next week. So thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks.